all political systems decline and they have to revitalize themselves through some conflict. You know, it doesn't have to be war, but we're going to choose war in Ukraine. And then he said in this op-ed, like, look, you people in the West, like, you do the same. You know, you did it in Iraq, you did it in Afghanistan, so we're going to do it in Ukraine. And I think what he was pointing to is the reason that Putin ultimately entered Ukraine. Now, this is investment relevant, Harry. This isn't just us having a philosophical debate. It's investment relevant because if he just went in there because his balls went down, then he's going to get out before the polls go down further because the war has now turned wrong. And this is extremely investment relevant. And it's the foundation of my thesis that the war probably is going to enter stasis. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged. The place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like, and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Marco Papic, partner and chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group in Santa Monica, California. A uh, little more need be said about that. An author of the excellent Geopolitical Alpha, which was published by Wiley in, in 2020. Um, so I guess we'll do the standard beginning, which is to go into your background. But uh, since you've done so many videos, many of which I've seen, uh, maybe we can keep it pretty short. Yeah, for sure. Um, so... I mean, my origin story, I guess, is that I failed at political science in academia. I failed at being a political risk consultant. Um, all of those things just weren't for me, you know. And then I really found my calling, I think, in marrying politics and finance. And I think the reason for that is that there's objectivity in the markets. And it's very difficult to be objective in terms of measuring your own success um, when you're doing political risk consulting or when you're doing something like academia. First of all, in academia, the time lags are so huge between you know, a paper you publish or paper you write and the paper you publish. And in political risk, the entire community, the entire political risk community just doesn't know the word objective um, and doesn't also know how to like measure success. You know, So um, markets are very, very clear. Uh, and that's what I really enjoy doing. I enjoy making political forecasts 
that are tied to market performance because then you know whether you were right or wrong. Perfect. And um, I know you work for Stratfor uh, with George Friedman and at BCA. Um, I know you've also gone into how, th- how these experiences helped you, part- partly in the book, but also in various podcasts. Um, can you say anything about them and how they led you to this point? Yeah, Hari. So like, I think Stratford was a great place to be a young analyst. And one of the things that George, and I talk about this in the book, what George Friedman uh, really taught me was that uh, when you write a really good analysis, every side should be angry, you know? <laughs> so you should, uh, like if you write an analysis about an incoming president, you know, as I remember he did when Obama came in in 2008, and it was really interesting. The Democrats didn't like the analysis because he basically told them, Obama's going to be just as Machiavellian, just as mean as George Bush was. And the Republicans didn't like it because he told him that Obama would be just as Machiavellian and just as mean as George Bush would be. And it was, it's, it's, it was really a, a true pleasure working there because uh, you learn how to do research, um, you learn how to be objective, and you learn to uh, think beyond the headlines, which actually what was interesting about investment professionals is they tend to look beyond the headlines when, for example, a new data is released. You know, like people in the markets are trained to look beyond the headline numbers. They're trained to look beyond the CEO press conference or a transcript of a CEO call. But for some reason, when it comes to politics, they are just first derivative headline. Oh, this is what's happening. And so at Stratford, you learned that politics is just the same. You have to look behind the headlines and behind what policymakers are saying. And then BCA Research, obviously, I mean, what can I say? It's the oldest, largest investment research firm in the world. And it taught me how to be an investor and how to be an investment strategist. So, I mean, everything I learned about the markets really comes from there. Cool. How about BCA? That's what I mean, BCA. Oh, oh BCA, of course, the oldest one. Yeah, yeah sorry. So Understood. BCA taught me that. So. Yeah, BCA Research, oldest, um, oldest and largest investment research firm in the world, um, independent. That is, you know, uh, not an investment bank or anything like that. Doesn't have risk on. Uh, purely focused on writing research, and that gave it a level of independence that I think is really critical in this industry. And also, it was off Wall Street in that it was headquartered in Montreal, which was. Initially, I thought it was weird. So when I moved to Montreal, I was like, how am I going to actually learn anything? And then you realized, well, because it's frozen winter for six months of the year, you have nothing nothing to do but hit the books and read. I mean, one of the great things about BCA is it has this library of its own research going back to the 1950s. And so you could sit there and read these PDFs of old research reports where the charts were hand-drawn. You know, um, and that was incredibly valuable for for me and for my experience. Yeah, I've used BCA over the years too, and I recall that one thing that was somewhat unique about them is that at the end of every report, they'd put some views in, some tradable views, and they would update them whenever a new report came out, and you could actually track them and follow them and see. And they were dynamic enough that they were not for not maybe not for the a an active hedge fund, but for a long-only money manager, they were pretty usable. So, uh, 
Yeah, and I, I think that's that was what was shocking to me when I came there, you know, because I didn't really know what I was getting into. And um, I remember some clients were like, what's your GDP point forecast? What's your inflation point forecast? And BCA strategists would say, like, who cares? Like, we have an S&P 500 forecast. Like, that's what we're about. You know, the macroeconomic part of the input of the framework um, like the academic discipline of economics was just one of the tools on the cutting room floor. Um, and what I what I really think is um, very notable about the firm is that the CEO at the time when I was hired, Bashar Al Rehani, uh, was really an innovator, and he he really pushed for someone like me to join the firm. And the way he said it was, he told the all, all the other strategists who had. PhDs and masters in economics, he said, I'm listening to your daily meetings and you keep hitting up against politics and saying, well, we don't do that. <laughs> and he was like, well, maybe we should, you know, and I think his own life experience, um, he is in, uh, in Iraqi Christian. And I think that he, uh, like, you know, is from the Middle East, is from emerging markets like myself. And he understood, like, you can't just be academic about the markets. You have to have someone on the team who knows how to do politics. And he pushed for me to get hired. And when I joined the firm, what I think really helped was that everybody there was open to these other methodologies and frameworks being used to craft and truly craft the views. And that's what I, that's something that I think a lot of investors have to understand. Well, we're, we're in the business of a craft. It's not a science. It's not total bullshit. There is some of it, you know, but it's crafting. You have to craft your view. And if you're only using one tool, I mean, then you're always going to produce the same view. And uh, what I learned at BCA Research is to really like embrace the consilience of our industry, which is this marriage of different views in order to craft your view. Well, that's very powerful. I mean, I, my, I'm not an economist either, but my perception of economics is that at least behind in the ivory tower, a very small number of journals dominate the research agenda whether it's the Journal of Finance or whatever. Uh, everyone wants to get published in there because that's the path to tenure and so on and so forth. And you get a lot of groupthink, a lot of insularity, and a lot of methods that never have any validation, No, not even a potential for validation, which is even worse. Um, anyway, I could go on about that. But what I'd like to do is something a little different because I know you're, you're out there somewhat in the podcast world. Um, I won't pay reference too much to the comment that the more podcasts you give, the lower the quality of your forecast. Which you do I do that all the time, by the way. Just I just did a talk yesterday and the interviewer, like it was a fireside chat, she introduced me by saying like Marcos on CNBC and Bloomberg all the time. And I was like, whoa, just so we're clear, that makes me more likely to be epically wrong. So I think it's it's perfectly fine that you give that caveat at the beginning of this one. <laughs> I don't see you that much. And I, I, so I read that in the book. But anyway, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a bunch of statements. And I suspect you will disagree with all of them, but I'd like to hear your comments. And they refer to the book. They all refer to the book. Here's statement one. Geopolitical analysis, if it is valid in terms of uh, trading or investing in markets, is only really required in emerging markets or, say, before elections. Emerging markets because Politics are a dominant factor in sovereign yield spreads and so on. But in developed markets, we don't really care because even if there is a seismic event like 9-11, it may have create a shock, but it dissipates over time. So why worry about it? 
Yeah, and so that was that was the case, you know. And as I say in the book, one of the pioneers of our industry, uh, Ian Bremmer, although George Friedman did start Stratford before Eurasia Group, uh, Ian Bremmer obviously has had extraordinary success with Eurasia Group, and he named it Eurasia Group because one, that was his sort of skill set at the time. He was focused on the post-Soviet space. But two, I, I'm pretty sure he thought he would not be able to sell this if he called it like the global group. You know, like, what do you mean? No one cares about U.S. politics. Like, we're not good. We're not, we don't have, to, like, Bob Dole versus Bill Clinton. Like, pff, okay, whatever. So I think that you're right. That statement is correct and has been correct for most of our, um, for most of our careers, most of the careers of everyone listening to this. But I think that there are paradigm shifts going on right now such as the move away from laissez-faire economics and the Reagan-Thatcher revolutions, which created a set of best practices, uh, which are referred to as the Washington Consensus. These are being eroded. Uh, the U.S. government is explicitly uh, getting involved in who wins and who loses, um, even at a sectoral level. So things like state aid, which are you know like illegal according to the WTO, the EU Commission used to like sue countries in Europe when they offered state aid to industries, now we're like doing it willy-nilly. Um, like think, think about the CHIPS Act. You know, literally the United States of America is telling foreign companies like, don't trade with China, but it's cool because we'll give you hundreds of billions of dollars if you come and build a fab, you know, in our country, uh, in the US. That's like, how is that legal by the WTO? But also at the same time, like who cares what the WTO says? So I would say that we are now in a different world. You know, honey, and we're in a world that actually, for most of history, has existed. So the last 40 years were an anomaly where you didn't need politics and geopolitics in your investment toolkit. But throughout history, you've needed it. Uh, now, I want to just be very clear, and I'm very clear in the book. I'm very modest in the book on this point. Like, you still need to start as an investor with valuations. You still need to start with a bottom-up understanding of where the earnings are going to come from. You still need to all the stuff the CFA taught you. You need that. My claim is modest. Just add a little new tool into that tool toolkit. Um, and that's political and geopolitical analysis. Perfect. Statement number two. Uh, if you want geopolitical analysis, go to the insiders, the former insiders. Now they might be out, but they know how the system works. And they're the ones to go to. You know how to push my buttons. Look at you. You did your research, my friend. You did what I can. Yeah, no. Uh, so look, we just had an interesting situation actually over the last couple of days that I'm very proud of uh, because we crushed it. My team crushed it and it wasn't me. It was my colleague who uh, runs our Shanghai office, uh, brilliant young strategist um, who I think is going to be the best China strategist over the next 30 years. And, um, you know, he basically put his foot down and said zero COVID is going to end March. You know, between sometimes between March uh, and June, so much earlier deadline than most experts who talk to policymakers. Now, if you talk to policymakers in China, they're going to tell you we're serious about zero COVID. We're not changing it. And in, and in fact, there was a slew of news items over the last couple of days, over the course of early November. For those listening to this podcast a little bit later, over the course of early November, you know, the State Council of China, a number of different policymakers were saying, no, 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 we're not going to modify. And then, boom, on November 11th. They come out with these 20 new modifications, which are telling you the cat is out of the bag. We're moving towards less and less zero COVID. So how do we how do we get this right? Not by talking to policymakers. Not at all. We we figured out that provinces are running out of money, honey. 
they can't do PCR testing. They're asking people to pay for their own quarantine, man. Like, you know, this is like French Revolution risk for, for China. You go to like a random Chinese person and tell them they have to pay for quarantine. They're going to be like, dude, come on. So there, there's one. The second thing that nobody really thought about is we're moving away from this binge on goods uh, motivated by COVID and by stimulus. So the Western consumer is no longer binging on goods, which means Chinese exports have been downshifting. And what's interesting about zero COVID, we enabled it. We in the West enabled Chinese policymakers to do zero COVID because their growth was dependent on external demand. That's collapsing now with slowdown in US, recession in Europe, and a shift away from goods to services. So the, the fundamental macro constraints are forcing a shift in zero COVID. We got it right. My team got it right. I didn't get it right. Just to be clear for everyone on podcast, if you think I'm arrogant, I'm not. I didn't do anything to make this call. It was all my colleague in Shanghai. That guy's brilliant. Not going to say his name because, you know, it's kind of iffy um, for a number of reasons. But my point is they got it right because they looked at constraints, the material constraints that force policymakers into the political path of least resistance. And he had nothing. We didn't have to talk to a single individual in China. Now, all that said, I don't discourage investors from paying for good advice from ex-policymakers. Just read my book first, and I don't need the money from the book. I'm not going to make any money, so I'm not selling my book. Just read I it. I hear you on that front. Yeah. You're right. Like, we know that. No, look, read the book so you know what questions to ask these people because they're not going to be able to tell you the material constraints. The other problem, you know, is that ex-policymakers are trained. They're trained to overcome constraints. If you think about it, honey, we pay taxes specifically so that we can pay really smart people to go to government and so they can overcome constraints. We don't, you know, like, imagine if you voted for someone like, oh, I like that guy because he's not going to change anything. I like that guy because he's going to roll over when he faces constraints. No, no, no. We pay politicians and policymakers and technocrats to look beyond constraints, to try to do their best to not be stuck. And so when you hire an ex-policymaker, they're going to look at my framework and say that's bullshit. You know, I worked in government and I overcame these constraints. And so there's agency, there's humanity in their approach. And I respect that. I really do. I don't think they're just bullshitting. I respect their optimism. They're, they're children of enlightenment. They believe that human agency can improve, you know, mankind. My point to investors is like, look, that's cool. We love them for that. But the truth of the matter is this. Material constraints will always win over policymaker ingenuity Focus on constraints first, then focus on preferences. And to focus on constraints, you don't need to talk to an ex-policymaker. You need to talk to analysts. Final thing I want to say about this, honey, I mean, listen, sorry it's a long-winded answer, but this is I'm really passionate about this. I'm really passionate about this. The final thing I want to say, two points more. One, policymakers are nationals. They defended the interests of a country. Be very careful about that. You know, like they still have a bias. They love their countries. We literally vet them to ensure that they're not going to cheat. They're not going to become spies, right? We, we hire people for our, for our government who are loyal to that country. That is one of the qualifications. You don't want that as an investor. You want someone who's promiscuous. You want someone who's a geopolitically promiscuous mind, who can think in an a-national way. Because you're trying to like invest. You're not trying to defend the national interest of the United States of America. And if you conflate the two... Well, then good luck investing. The second thing you want is you want an analyst. You want an analyst. 
And this is something that I find fascinating. CIOs of pension funds, I speak to really smart people who manage 300 and plus billion dollars a year. They think that talking to an ex-policymaker is smart. And I ask them, would you talk to an ex-CEO to understand the sector or to understand a particular company? No, you would talk to a trained analyst. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's my pitch to people listening to this podcast or my clients. My pitch is like, I'm an analyst. I'm not a policymaker. I never want to be a policymaker. I don't want to work for government ever. My job is to analyze them. Policymakers are the subject of my analysis. They're not your friends. They're not your allies. They're not your sources of research. They're the subject of your analysis. So don't go to them for advice. Perfect. Well, I, I mean, there is an analogy with central banking too. It used to be thought that the central bank governors knew everything, whereas it's the people who actually do the transactions, who actually buy and sell bonds or do whatever, who probably have a deeper understanding as to the way that monetary policy works or doesn't work. And people are getting wise to that now. But um, I think it's really interesting how you mention it on the geopolitical side as well. Uh, next controversial statement, potentially, I get investment constraints. So a lot of, inv- let's say, take an investment grade bond fund. If a bond gets downgraded, it becomes high yield, they can no longer officially high yield, they can no longer hold it, let's say. So that creates a um, discount in the value of those bonds that get downgraded. And so you can buy some of them, and maybe you have an edge, or maybe you have a premium. Geopolitical constraints, where you have a politician or a party that can do certain things and cannot do other things, and maybe has the support of the public or the median voter, or maybe doesn't, uh, how does one exploit that in the same mechanistic way that uh, investment constraints can be exploited? So everything depends on the price, you know, and this is why my team and I, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's priced in. Uh, and we use as quantitative tools as we can gauge whether there's a geopolitical premium or not. So what I mean is everything starts off with what does the market think? And quite often, because investors, I think this is the last, well, maybe not the last. I mean, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I think this is one of the last realms of finance, of market functioning, where there's an arbitrage opportunity. Because I think we have a skill set mismatch. Too many people who are in finance are very quantitatively inclined and focused on you know traditional financial tools. So when political issues crop up, there's this jump in pricing. The market reacts to that event or development or paradigm shift. And then the question is, okay, what's going to happen? More often than not, market participants believe that policymakers are pursuing their interests or they have ideological goals or this or that, like President Xi and zero COVID. Like, well, they're not going to change that. Boom, Congress over, 180-degree turn. What? Who expected that? That's where the constraint framework can really be useful and it can really be actionable in generating alpha. In that once market moves, if you believe that policymakers will have to pursue a course of action that the market is assigning a very low probability to, you can you can actually structure trades and just wait until the constraints overcome the preferences of policymakers. So you're basically building out of consensus views. You're claiming that the market is pricing in the consensus view, and maybe you do an options trade or something to get some convexity if the 
perhaps lower probability, but not that lower probability event comes into comes into play. So I think option option trades are the best way to express this because of timing issues. So you're absolutely correct. But I have had success with Delta One as well, positioning. So like oil prices this year are a good example. I mean, obviously ahead of the conflict, everybody in their chocolate Labrador was long commodities, and that was correct hedge to the war. Um, but then around like May, I started looking at the demand function in the markets. I felt that there wasn't enough demand for the current price of oil. But on top of that, I thought the current price of oil in like May and June was influenced by geopolitics, which I thought was an overstated risk. And so that created in it like a Delta One opportunity. You didn't really need to use option markets, but you could have and probably you would have made more money. Whatever the case is, uh, the key here is that you're not necessarily trying to forecast political events. This is important. Uh, because I hear a lot of this, like you can't predict politics, like, okay, cool, whatever. You can't predict earnings either, but we do it. Like what you do is you're trying to get, you're trying to beat the market. You're trying to beat the bookie. You're trying to beat the casino, not the political event. And in the book, I use the example of betting on sports in, in the US with like football, for example, you know, you're not betting on whether the bills are going to beat the Patriots. You're betting on whether or not the spread is going to be closed. Like, because the market thinks the Bills are going to beat the Patriots by two touchdowns. And you're saying like, nah, I think that's too much. That's, they're, they're too optimistic about the Bills' chances. I'm going to go under the spread. And that's something you can do using a constraint-based framework. And, uh, you know, I describe a couple examples in the book. Uh, it doesn't always work, obviously. And sometimes option markets are better than, you know, Delta One because it gives you a little bit more room to be wrong. Perfect. Okay. Uh, final controversial statement, maybe, is that, uh, you know, there's a uh, ever-increasing literature of fat tails, you know, black swans, all that jazz. And a lot of the econophysicists, of which I'm kind of a, a affiliate member, claim that fat tails are really caused by network effects. They have nothing to do with the outside world. All shocks are random, unpredictable inherently. And so big deleveragings are what cause 2008, 2020 even moves, rather than COVID being anything more than a driver, it's basically massive shedding of risk that, that really drives the moves that kind of make careers. What's your view on that? I mean, I would say that that's one of the statements you've said that I probably have the least professional skill set to answer, but I would say that I agree. Um, I think that there are there are catalysts, you know, that cause these big deleveraging moments, as you say, 2008 or 2020. Uh, but those catalysts are just the spark. The there has to be dry tinder somewhere in the system. Uh, so I would agree with you, and um, and I would also uh, argue that it doesn't really pay to try to predict black swans. Like I, I remember when I got hired to BC Research, and this is in the book. You probably laughed at that when they, they said, oh, you're going to be the Black Swans guy. And I was like, why? Like, like what's the, I mean, that's like one piece a year. You want me to write one analysis a year? Like, cool. I mean, I guess I can do that. Uh, but I want to make a lot more money, you know, than what you paid me. So, um, so yeah, I mean, like, I'm not really a Black Swans guy. Um, you know, like, I'm sure every client would probably get something out of bringing me to the office once a year. And then we kind of whiteboard some risks. But um, I wouldn't be the guy to structure trades around that. So you're saying over the next couple of decades, you need to be able to do it all. You need to be decent evaluations or have a team that's decent at it. You need to be able to 
monitor these buildups of leverage. And then you also need to have some geopolitical insights in a world where there's no dominant power, where there's a fracturing and internalization of um, economic activity. Yes. And what I would say is that the way you put that question is really key. When you said you have a team that's good at this, team that's good at that, like consilience, like listeners of the podcast should just go and Google the word consilience. So really, like that's what I'm getting at. It's this marriage of multiple discipline where we don't look down on any discipline. And, and obviously, you know, in finance and in markets, people have looked down at qualitative disciplines. Like political science is an oxymoron. It's not a science. I accept that. You know, I have three degrees in political science, which I always joke, uh, it basically means I can flip burgers. Like, yes, that's fine. But we are in a world where we need that like softer, more qualitative approach. And what I see often is that people who are very mathematically inclined, uh, they have an engineering mind, they struggle with the grays. You know, they, 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 they clutch at conspiracy theories because they're neat, they're beautiful, they're clean. And the world is not. Like people are messy and you need to be comfortable with the grayness. Um, and that's where I think that this multitude of, of minds is a, is a good way to do it. Also, one thing that is a problem, though, honey, people often ask me, Marco, can I hire someone like a junior person like you? And that's, that's a problem for me. You know, I, it's a problem for me to find young people. And here's why. Political science by itself, like going and getting an undergrad or a master's, is just not going to train you enough to, to be a national, to be able to be truly unbiased. And then to be able to have an analytical mind that's focused on the markets, not political outcomes, you need to have this mix of like nihilism in your mind and analytical rigor that really has, can only be trained. And I'm really good at training people, I think. Um, I'm really probably the proudest of creating really young, amazing strategists who then go off into their own. Um, but my problem is that like, I can't really find them being trained. And I think universities have to start thinking about this, especially business schools. I think business schools should incorporate into an MBA this kind of thinking and this stream because we need to start producing you know, young people who can be on teams and contribute a political analytical role. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when I worked at a macro fund in the UK, um, we tried to use the services of RUSI, which is a government-affiliated um, entity in, in London. And basically, they had analysts on the ground in various EM countries. And the analysts typically had academic backgrounds. Many of them were trained in the UK. And it was very hard to make the ideas actionable on the one hand, and secondly, to compare one country to another. Because <laughs> the, even though they were all academic frameworks, they were very different. And this is an issue that I would imagine you struggle with unless you train everyone from the ground up in terms of interpreting the different perspectives different people have in different regions. How do you manage that? You know, uh, when I was pursuing a PhD at University of Texas, I actually went into comparative politics, which is extremely unsexy and very few PhDs do this. Most PhD students who are interested in foreign affairs do international relations theory, which is super sexy. You know, Whereas comparative politics is just, very boring. Um, but I did that. And that actually, so that part of political science, I think was very useful. Um, it does strive to create indicators across different nations and then measure nations uh, uh, a lot. 
He tries to. He tries to. He does his best. And, you know, you can poke so many holes through this, but the truth is it's a starting point. Um, and so, for example, this book by professors Inglehart and Veltzel is one of the best examples of this. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a really decent way to kind of like approach it. But I wouldn't say that that's all it takes. I mean, what you have to have is, unfortunately, people who are trained from day one to just analyze countries uh, in an unbiased, data-driven, constrained framework way. Um, and I, I don't have an answer, honey, other than to hire people I've trained. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> That's cool. Oh, just one point of clarification. Even though I'm glad you like me, my name is Hari, not Honey. Oh, sorry. But, uh, Hari, no yeah, problem. My bad. I, just, I think the audience will enjoy that, though. Yeah. Uh, so moving from statements to definitions, because I think there are a lot of terms in the book that deserve mention. You mentioned constraint-based analysis, and this reminds me very much of uh, problems in optimization. I'm putting my engineering hat on, where you have constraints and you have some quantity you're trying to optimize, even in portfolio theory. And if your constraints aren't set right, the solution winds up on the constraints. So the optimization does nothing. And your, your approach seems very similar to that in the sense that policymakers can even be technocrats and try and optimize various desired outcomes, but ultimately they wind up just landing on these constraints. I just thought that was a fascinating um, analogy, uh, well, for me at least, uh, for constraint-based analysis. Um, the second one is the Buenos Aires uh, consensus versus the Washington consensus. I shouldn't define your terms. Maybe you can say what they are. So yeah, Washington consensus I mentioned earlier in the podcast, it's a set of best practices that emerged in the 1980s um, with the Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher revolutions. Um, and they have to do with a lot of things that we take we took for granted. So free trade, um, counter-cyclical fiscal policy, independent central banking, inflation targeting, uh, laissez-faire approach to macroeconomic policy, so deregulation, um, privatization of nationalized industries. The state withdrew from the private sector by literally selling its stake in, um, in various corporations. And so that set of best practices that won the ideological confrontation with communism, but also with a more... Um, more competitive form of left-leaning thought, which was socialism, such as Francois Mitterrand challenge in the 1980s in France, that was packaged by the IMF and World Bank and, and basically exported. Like it was like a thought export to the rest of the world. And that's the Washington consensus. That's what political scientists kind of refer to as the Washington consensus and economists do too. Um, and what I was trying to say in the book, I was trying to say we're reversing that all of it, like every single thing I just mentioned, we're reversing it. Like Chips Act is a great example. The United States of America is becoming more dirigist. And, you know, many listeners are like, yeah, but we need that. And I'm like, I'm not saying we need it or don't. I'm just saying, stating a fact. And so I needed a name for this reversal. And so I came up with Buenos Aires consensus. And that's what it is. It's the reversal from the Washington. Now, why Buenos Aires? Obviously, for for PR reasons, you know, I am still a sell side strategist at heart and trying to sell ideas. So I'm like, I want to, punch, no, we're, I'm trying to punch investors in the face. I don't actually mean that we're going to be Argentina at all. This is, this is not the right analogy. Um, we're just moving away from what was before. And then I found out, I don't know if you listened to me on a couple of other podcasts, but I actually Googled 
Washington, uh, uh, Buenos Aires consensus to see if you know it was catching on because I'm petty. Um, and so it turns out it turns out that there were a set of meetings in Buenos Aires, and they were attended by AMLO when he was like Mexico City mayor, uh, Professor Stiglitz. It was this kind of a left-leaning group of policymakers in Latin America actually met in Buenos Aires, and they said, we're here to define the Buenos Aires consensus. And I was like, oh, man, this is cool. Yeah, like they, they did it. Um, but, I, but, I, but I like it because it, it does show you that people have been trying to move away from Washington consensus. And they've been saying that Washington consensus and laissez-faire capitalism uh, has created many negative externalities. Um, and so – this movement away from it is not like a conspiracy. It's being driven by median voter demands, I would argue. And it's also being driven by um, the lack of magnanimity in the hegemon. Like the United States is no longer willing to be a magnanimous hegemon that provides these expensive global public goods, just security, um, you know, greasing the wheels of globalization. Uh, the United States itself is becoming much more focused on national interests and if, when it does that, it creates cascades along the system where everybody else is going to do the same. And that moves us away from the laissez-faire approach to free trade or to you know, ma- managing one's economy. We're moving into a dirigiste form of capitalism where the state is much more involved. Okay, that leads me to two questions. The first one is actually a definition. You mentioned median voters. You have a median voter theorem. Can you tell us what that is? So median voter theory uh, assumes that there is a median voter on every issue under the sun. In other words, um, there is a curve of voters on every issue, and the median voter is the one, is, it's the point under the curve where there's the most voters. Most voters are clustered on that. So gun rights, for example, in the United States of America, there is a clustering along some you know, left-right spectrum on this issue. And it also assumes, and this is really important, that politicians are truly just maximizing, like value-maximizing agents. They try to do two things. They try to figure out what is the issue of the day, what is the most important issue. There's abortion, there's gun rights, there's fiscal policy, there's monetary policy, blah, 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 free trade China. They try to figure out what's the issue of the day, and then they try to appeal to that median voter. Why is this important? It's important because it means left, right, Democrat, Republican, blah, 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 blah. None of it matters. Politicians will sniff out where the median voter is and focus on that issue and and move towards the median voter. So, for example, I'll give you something concrete to hold on. Right right now, we've got the Republicans winning the House in the U.S. You've got Rishi Sunak in the United Kingdom. You know, the big question that investors have is like, are we going to get austerity? You get a center-right prime minister in the United Kingdom. Uh, who's going to move away from Liz Truss's, you know, more populist tax policies. You have in the U.S. the Republicans coming back. Last time Republicans won the House under a Democratic president, you got the Tea Party asking for austerity, for budget deficit reduction. And my argument would be that in 2010, yes, you got David Cameron, you got Tea Party. They wanted lower deficits because the median voter wanted it. I would argue in 2022, that's not the case. Now, one thing to just keep in mind, uh, Harry, is that this theory is discredited in uh, political science. Like nobody actually uses it, and they that don't. Surprises use- me. It makes perfect sense. Well, but the thing is, it's like it hasn't empirically worked. 
you know, it hasn't empirically worked on a lot of different things. And the reason for this is that I think political scientists are looking for like 100% correct theory. Um, and I'm not. I'm just trying to use whatever tools there are on the table to figure shit out, for lack of yeah, a better Yeah, bag of tricks is great. Bag of tricks. And, and look, I think in finance, this does matter because, you know, it's a really important question. Are the Republicans now going to try to push Biden to dramatic austerity, which would then obviously matter? U.S. growth would decelerate significantly. Um, and I just think that the Republicans are smart enough. This is what they're good at. This is what politicians are truly professionals at. It's sniffing out where the median voter is. They're not going to go against the median voter. Maybe in six to 18-month time horizons they are, but then they're going to learn through failure through elections, and they're going to adjust their policies towards the median voter. To what extent is the median voter affected by the media? To what but extent is it controlled by the media? Yeah, by the news media, by the internet, and so on. So, so I think in the short term, I think they are. But in the long term, I think there are bigger forces at play. Um, That's such a great as, point. Okay. You know, such as like, I don't know, economic situation, your, your household income, household debt relative to household income, things like that are more relevant. Um so what am I getting at? I mean, there's a chapter in the book, you know, where I talk about how um, people, how it, how I've been wrong in my forecasts in the past because I ignored media hysteria, whether it was COVID or whether it was terrorism. Those were the two issues that, you know, like I've been less alarmist on. And I, I use that really famous example where Barack Obama came out and said, hey, ISIS is a joke, guys. Just because you put a Kobe Bryant jersey on doesn't mean you play for the Lakers. This was literally what, what Barack Obama said. And that really, really hurt him. But I agreed with him. And by the way, it, it was true. ISIS guys were, you know, they were yahoos. They were like, they drove around Toyota trucks with 50 caliber weapons. The moment that Iran and the United States got serious about crushing ISIS, guess what? They got crushed. The problem is from here to there, they did cause a lot of terrorist attacks. A lot of civilians died in major cities, and people were truly impacted by this, and it affected elections. I would argue throughout 2016 and 2017, ISIS did affect politics in the Western world. And so even though your assessment of their material strengths and weaknesses may have been correct, in the shorter term, and not really short term, I would say that was like six, 12-month hysteria – Terrorism was seen as something. I mean, I had really smart people coming to me saying, like, look, this is, this is like worse than World War III. We can't, and, and I would use data. I would show, like, look, there's these bouts of terrorism that go up and down. Like, did you know the left-leaning terrorism in Europe was far more deadly in the 1970s? People would look at me like, I have three heads. They'd be like, no, but these are radical Muslims. It's different. I'm like, eh, nah, is it? You know, I'd have really smart, educated people say kind of semi-racist stuff. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, you know, guys, this is going to dissipate. But the problem is that media does influence the median voter in the near term and investors too. And so it's not smart to push against the hysteria. Is that why the media or the political parties are so sensitive, aggressively active in prior yeah. to elections in the last few weeks? I think so. But I also think there's something worse about it. I think that they are so sensitive to Twitter and social media. You know, I think uh, political parties are almost driven by it in some ways. Um, first of all, it's easy. It's easy to get immediate feedback to your policies. And the second thing is that I think they also understand what I'm saying. That's one of the risks to investors, by the way. 
it's very difficult to have a policymaker who just says, like, I don't care what Twitter says. You know, I don't care what Facebook says. I'm going to look ahead of the curve be or whatever, behind the curve, beyond the curve. It's very difficult to do that. Um, I'm very good as an analyst. I think this is my specialty is looking beyond the curve. And that's why it frustrates a lot of people that I speak to or on, frustrates Fintwit that like, like just loves to hate on me because I'm always like, oh, this happened. I don't, I don't agree. We should talk about that one over a beer. That's, there's a lot to talk about on that one. But you know but, what? Yeah. But you know what? You can't trade that way. And this is, this is something I've learned. You shouldn't trade with my views necessarily always. I mean, sometimes I'm very explicit, like this is happening now, but I'm also very explicit. I've learned over my career to explain like, look, the hysteria is right here. I'm over there, but between here and there, you're going to lose a lot of money if you take my view. Now, in the long term, for long-term investors, especially the kind of investors I also service, it's not just hedge funds, it's also institutional investors, the long-term is important. Um, and it's Especially important if you go private. If you go, if you go outside of public investments, maybe you can play the long game a bit more easily. But nonetheless, it's, it's, uh, it's important to understand what your biases and strengths and weaknesses are. And, and I would say that this is one of them. Uh, the ISIS example is perfect. Ultimately, I was proven correct. You know, and a lot of people who came to me and were like freaking out and thought that Europe would like collapse in some sort of orgy of violence, like they looked silly. Um, but in those twelve months, like they were right. Understood. Okay. Uh, the the next question is about your Bayesian analysis section and how you don't. You're not entirely data driven, but you believe that there need to be prior assumptions made in any analysis that you do, and you call that a net assessment strategy. Maybe you can you can tell us about that. Yeah. So like traditionally when investment banks or you know investors who are sort of like dropped into political analysis, when they try to make sense of it, they go back and they look at previous cases. And I had a Brexit, you will remember, Harry, like there was this slew of analyses that looked at prior referendum, independence referendums, and they assigned some probability derived from the success of these independence referendums, which was fairly low. Um, I'm guilty of this myself, like just now with the midterm elections, everyone's publishing the same chart we always publish, which is like stock market performance following midterm elections and particularly stock market performance following midterm elections that produce a divided government is usually better. And you have data going back to 1930s, you know, it's like, wow, you know, this is good. Republicans won the house. And it's like, well, hold on a second. We didn't have this kind of polarization in the past. The Republicans and Democrats didn't try to default on debt in order to use political like brinkmanship. Like that happens now. So do you really want divided government? Like, I don't know. On one hand, you don't get socialism of like, quote unquote, socialism. Americans love to throw that word out just as a caveat. But like left-leaning policies of the Biden administrations are now checked. On the other hand, you've got Republicans threatening default through debt ceiling crises. So this is where, instead of relying on previous iterations of political events, what we should do is build a net assessment, which is essentially uh, like a health checkup, you know, like going to the doctor and getting your blood drawn. And what I mean by that is like, figure out what is your political forecast based on a set of, you know, material constraints and fundamentals and looking at where the median voter is and looking at what policymakers want and what they can get and what... You know, like really do a research report on the situation. In this case, 
Democrats versus Republicans in Congress. Uh, what are the priorities? What can they get? What do you think brinkmanship is going to look like? Who are the key actors to follow? And then you can use a Bayesian approach where you use as data comes in, does it change your forecast? And now this. So you're using data even to formulate your prior, but you're not using the same data as everyone else. You're not using outcome data. So like what I would say is it, don't obsess about how things were in the past in terms of outcomes. Like we just talked about the Buenos Aires shift. So we're not in Kansas anymore. It's not Washington consensus. American hegemony. We talked about that a little bit briefly as well. It doesn't exist anymore. We're in a multipolar world. So using prior outcomes, like how did these crises resolve themselves in the past, I think is less valuable than trying to figure out what is your view right now? What is your net assessment um, You know, based on the data you have about what the world looks like right now? And so that takes time, unfortunately, and it requires you to do some work rather than just get opening up in Excel and just coding like every time there was an election for like an independence referendum, what, do, what would it look like? Perfect. So your posterior distribution then is some blended version of what you found in your net assessment and the data as it comes in, as it filters in over time. Well, I mean, I think your posterior probability is purely based on the net assessment and then you will move it based on the data that comes in that, and that you identify it this is a key part of the net assessment. The net assessment should have like a checklist at the end. Here are the things, dear clients, or here's the here are the things, dear portfolio managers of my firm, that I'm looking at to move my posterior probability up and down um, over the next couple of months. You know, and that's and, and for example, let's let's talk specifics. We had a midterm election. There is concern that the Republicans will use extreme brinkmanship again. Uh, and what I would look at is obviously statements of the Freedom Caucus members, Mitch, McC uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, uh, McCarthy in the House, but also I would look at polling. So you can you can look at polls, Pew Research um, and Gallup, of how many voters believe that getting the budget deficit down is a critical like priority of the government. And I can tell you it's well below 50% right now. In 2010, when the Tea Party was at its height, 2010, 11, 12, it was in the 80s. So just and, and so I would say, like, okay, I want to, I want to see: Do voters really want austerity? Right? Do they care about budget deficits? And um, I would argue that they don't. And therefore, I would argue that politicians, Republicans, are smart enough not to play this brinkmanship. So anything that changes that would be diagnostic and would change my probabilities. A uh, slightly tangential question there. Have you ever done any tests where you say, let's say that all of your discrete outcome or binary outcome predictions were right? You got Brexit right. You got all the referendums right. You got all the elections right. Is it how much money, how much edge would you have then? Oh, man. Because it's I still, love this. Yeah, still I love this in the outcome. So I've never done that. I've never connected my political forecasts and market forecasts because I only focus on market outcomes. As I tell my clients, look, I'm an investment strategist. You know, I know I'm weird. I know I'm not an economist and I started my career in finance late, but I, this is what I believe I am. I just use this tool, which is political analysis. And, um, but I'll, I'll tell you anecdotally. Anecdotally, I can tell you that I'm one of the best Latin American at political analysts in the world. Like, boom, flex, let's go. What? But, but. From 2011 to 2000, I would say 19, I didn't. I, my my ability to predict markets was zero percent. I got no calls right in Latin America. Zero, zero. 
And then I and I was like, what the heck is going on? And then I realized, look, it's all about terms of trade. For Latin American markets, it's all about terms of trade. It's like our commodity price is going up. Is the dollar going down? Is China okay? You hit all three of those, man, who cares? Karl Marx could rise from the grave and run and win presidential elections, and you're buying that currency. You're like, hey, man, President Marx, I don't care. And this is something – and, you know, like I learned that through my career, and, you know, I I suffered a lot. Uh, My clients in Latin America were like laughing at me, literally. I think one bank in Brazil had like my analysis posted on their board, like this guy's an idiot, and God bless them. I was, you know, and I learned. And now, since 2019, I've been mega bullish on Latin America in the face of COVID, in the face of left leaning, you know, uh, political outcomes. I just don't care. I think Latin America is going to be the best performing uh, continent for this decade. And by the way, it's proven correct so far. I mean, the resiliency of Latin American currencies and some equity markets with some ups and downs and volatility has been really impressive. What I learned was that politics may not be a tool with which to invest in Latin America. And in fact, it could still generate alpha if you bet against the hysterias either way. Perfect. Um, Moving along to spread trades, uh, India-China is something you reference in the book or you've talked about recently. First of all, is your argument that spread trades will be more theoretically profitable because of the fracturing of the world order? Uh, going forward than they have been over time. You know, so for example, if you got the S&P right, if you got the SPOOs right over the last however many years, you could pretty much make money in any market because the loading to that, to the US was so big. First of all, do you think that that's, that loading will drop that these betas to the S&P or to the most liquid asset in town will drop? Yes, I do. Is there any evidence in the data recently that that is the case? I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't checked. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I'm just going to start off with like, I'm a huge Luddite. I'm a huge Luddite. I hate technology. Um, I'm not a big tech guy either. So I have no, to. No, I mean, look, we're, we're like having so many problems <laughs> with this. Zoom. Like, you would think in 2022 we'd figure out the podcast. It's like, there's still issues. And what I would say, what I would say is this I think. It's going to be very tough for tech to outperform the next decade. I think there's going to be pockets in tech that I'm very bullish about. For example, industries that haven't techified enough. Like here in the US, our financial system is medieval. You know, when when millennial Chinese people come to work with us, they laugh at me. You know, they're like, dude, what is this personal check you guys still use? It's like crazy. Uh, When you go abroad with an American credit card, you're like embarrassed. In Europe, it's always like you give the credit card to a cab driver. He's like, okay. It's fine. I'm like, no, it's not fine. I have to sign. He's like, no, you don't. You haven't had to sign since 2007. I'm like, I'm American. I need to sign. You know, it's embarrassing. So my point is there's still like pockets, but I think tech is going to underperform massively because the world needs real stuff made. We need CapEx-driven growth because of this multipolar world, because globalization is eroding marginally, not massively, but requires rebalancing supply chain. That's going to take a lot of copper, a lot of excavators, blah, blah, blah. So to answer your question, I think S&P 500, which is tech-laden. Nowadays, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it's, it's coming down, but I think it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to outperform other markets. Um, so I do think that there's going to be more variability. Now, your question about spread trades, like, is there something geopolitical about spread trades? No, I don't think so. And I would say, honestly, Harry, like most of the time when I put them on, I'm always kicking myself for the um, 
for the short. You, you, I mean, I, I'm being too cute when I go like long China, short India. Like why? Um, there is beta in risk assets that you okay. don't want to get like necessarily um, sideswiped with. So Let me I give you a fancier spread trade idea then, just to see if this is in line with your thinking. Take a country like Poland, rampant inflation, yields are not that high. Let's say they're 6 or 7%. So if you do some normalization across countries, you'd say, oh, Poland has to hike like crazy. Um, is that the sort of thinking you would have rather than uh, yeah. thinking just in terms of an equity beta neutral trade? I think so. I think that's fine. And then, you know, like you're making a call in Poland and you're not necessarily trying to like fight anything else. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I understand why hedge funds need to have spread trades on. That's cool. Uh, I respect that. I just think that me personally, maybe I'm not the guy to do that. Um, and it's sometimes that these net assessments, you know, are really about a singular country. And the net assessment itself should really be about country A. And then, you know, you should let the trader figure out if he wants to or she wants to hedge it. But I don't think necessarily we need to look at the world of geopolitics as one country against another um, and then translate that into a spread trade. I think you can, you can use geopolitical analysis and just figure out what countries are going to do really well in this, in this environment. Again, going back to Latin America, I love Latin America because of geopolitics. You know, in the 1980s, they had to pay the piper. They had to go with one side or another. Like it was brutal. And usually it was the US they had to go to because it's so close. This time around, US relative power is weaker. China is out there as an alternative source of economic growth. And Latin American countries are savvy enough. Their policymakers know what's up. And they have no problem being geopolitically promiscuous in this environment. So they're going to be basically going to everyone else and saying, F you, pay me. This is, this is what I'm seeing in the world right now, whether it's Latin America, India, Malaysia, Philippines, countries basically saying like, look, if you want to curry favor with us, you got to pay us in some way, shape or form. You don't want me to take a loan from China because China's evil. Okay, cool story. Well, then you give me a loan. And the recent example of this that hasn't really been picked up by the media much was the Philippines. You know, Philippines had this order of Russian helicopters. And the US came out and said, we'll give you $100 million, no strings attached, that you don't buy Russian helicopters. And the Philippines was like, cool, we'll, we'll do that. Now, they ended up buying American helicopters. So it's not like the Philippines just took the money and bought some other, although only two countries produce transport helicopters. So, you know, the point is, though, um, it's a good example of how just flirting with another power can produce positive results. Whereas in a Cold War, when the U.S. and Soviet Union were so powerful, if you flirted with another power, boom, you had a coup d'etat in your country. You know, like F-16s were dropping like bombs on your presidential palace. Now, Americans show up and like, look, okay, we know we were not, you know, taking you out to dinner. Here's a check, right? We good? And that's something that's going to favor, I think, emerging markets this decade. This geopolitical multipolarity gives them an opportunity that they didn't have in the past. Okay, uh, another slightly tangential question, referring to my own job. Or more, more to the point, uh, which is, is if U.S. dominance de- continues to decrease, which you predict it will, I suppose, does that imply necessarily the dollar dominance has to decrease? In other words, does the U.S. dollar have to become less of a reserve currency in the medium term if the U.S. is less politically powerful? 
Yes, but it doesn't mean you should short the dollar, right? So I, I am a dollar bear, like right now. I think the dollar will go down. Um, I think it's kind of like overvalued, and I think that the world is not ending. So I think things are going to be okay. Let's just say that's my view. But that view has nothing to do with what I think about reserve currencies, just to be clear. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the crucial point, because if you think that there are going to be problems in the global lending system induced by the breakdown of the system, then the dollar should get stronger in the short yeah, term, right? Yeah, 100%. Exactly. No, 100%. So I'm, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic right now for the next 12 months. Like my, 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 my deck right now, the title is what if the world is not ending? Okay. Um, so I'm a dollar bear, but not like a massive dollar bear. I just think dollar can come down. Okay. Now that has nothing to do. And I think people really need to understand like long-term viability of the dollar as a reserve currency, is such a long-term question. You can go up and down as the dollar is becoming less of a reserve currency. You can have dollar bull markets in a world where we're marginally using the dollar less. Like it's, everything is marginal. Um, Barry Eichengreen, who knows about this a lot more than I do, wrote a bunch of papers on this. Um, Professor Eichengreen wrote a paper where he looked at uh, how long it took the pound to you know, lose reserve currency status. And everybody knows this. I mean, the pound went from something like 70% of use in currency reserves to like 48%, with it, which was still the first amongst equals, just to be clear. And it took like 60 years. So I think the same is going to happen with the dollar. I think the dollar will, of course, be less of a reserve currency 10 years from now. Like, I think that's, that, to me, that's obvious. I think the arguments against that are really difficult to make, but it's still going to be the first amongst equals. Um, and I think the biggest winner is the euro. And this is where people's heads blow up and they're like, oh my God, Marco, Europe is going to fall apart. I'm like, okay, first of all, number one, we've been waiting for Europe to collapse for like 10 years. So cool story. Number two, what else are you going to own? Remimbi? Well, they got to open their capital account first. You know, like they got to, I got to be incentivized to own a condo on Hainan Island. Like I'm not. <laughs> so what else is there? And I think the euro, if you look at the euro and you look at the blend of euro currencies that are today the euro, the blend of the Deutschmark and the Gilders and the Liras and the Pesetas was 10% more used for reserve currencies than the current level of the euro. So the euro could grab, yeah, it could grab 10% market share, whatever you want to call it, is the reserve currency uh, status. Let me try and take the other side of this. So if you pick each region, you try and pick the most stable store of value in each region. Europe, wouldn't it be the Swiss franc rather than the euro? I think Why the wouldn't problem, you bet on that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's... I mean, I think people will. The problem is liquidity, and the S and B really hates you. <laughs> so they're gonna, so they're gonna do something about it. Uh, Switzerland is a very export-driven economy. You know, they they really care about their export industries. It employs a lot of people. They their exports are as high as German exports as percent of GDP. We always think of Switzerland as chocolates and ski resorts and bankers, but they really do export a lot of machinery, a lot of goods. And uh, that's why politically, it's very tough for them to accept the kind of appreciation you would have in the Swiss franc if everybody was suddenly like, let's, let's switch into the Swiss franc. There's just not enough liquidity. Whereas in Europe, you're going to have more and more liquidity. And, and, and you know, COVID forced them to start issuing euro bonds, which I think is it, – it's moving in the direction that we all know it's moving into. By the way, when the ECB says to you, we're going to keep Italian yields at a certain level, we're going to basically protect through yield curve control this giant sizable market of bonds, 
they're telling you this is a euro bond. You know, and and I think that's the liquidity that that is necessary for a reserve currency status. Perfect. One final question for you. It's again, it's a little off piste, but uh, I love that. I, I recall. Well, thank you. I recall in the book uh, that you mentioned the constraints uh, allowed uh, Putin to invade Crimea in two thousand and fourteen because the public was not against that and his popularity had dropped how about now how does that how does the recent invasion fit into your constraint based so analysis? i didn't so when i did the probabilities of the two uh, of what's going to happen i was in the 50 50 camp which was wrong but if That's you actually well he was wrong <laughs> but if you look at the 50 camp wait 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 until i tell you what was in the other in the 50 the 50 percent invasion camp I had like 30% probability that it's like Georgia, where they fake an invasion of the capital and then go back to what they want. And I only had 2% assigned to a full invasion of Ukraine, which is what happened. They weren't faking. It's Russian. A fake invasion would have worked far better, I would have thought. I think so too. But like, like in Georgia, like what I, 2008, what they did in Georgia is they were outside of Tbilisi. And then they were like, psych, and they went to South Korea, uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So I thought that that had a 30% probability. And so um, I know some of my clients were like, hey, Marco, that's what happened. And I'm like, no, I got lucky. That's, that didn't happen. They truly wanted to invade all of Ukraine. So just to be clear, I assigned 2% probability to the outcome that happened. Like it's the worst forecasting error I've ever had in my career. It's understandable because it seems so badly done, the ah. invasion. Ah, and that's the power of the constraint framework, Harry. That's the power of it. Because I just stuck with it. I was like, you know what? Screw that. I'm sticking to my view, which is that this is dumb and that no logical person will do it. And so I haven't been surprised by a single thing that's happened since the invasion. And I doubled down on my view since the invasion, like the Russians are going to get their asses kicked. And here's the list of reasons. And a lot of clients were like, but Marco, you told me that was the list of reasons they wouldn't invade. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, now that they made a mistake... That list of reasons is still there. Still valid, yeah. You know, and um, and I think that, first of all, that validates the approach because it can still guide you uh, in terms of what happens to the outcome of this event. Um, but to answer your question, like, why do I think that he did it? I think he did it for the same reasons he did in 2014-15. So I'm not in a camp that believes that Russia is pushing against NATO. Germans and the French told Russia many, many times, look, there's no chance Ukraine will ever be NATO. And America can't get Ukraine into NATO. I mean, like 99% of investors don't understand this. I talk to people, sophisticated clients, they're like, but America, I was like, who cares? It's got to be unanimous. Germans can veto American views. And they did in 2008. Merkel said during a Budapest NATO summit to Bush, no way, man, no way. We're not putting Ukraine into NATO. So one, I don't believe that. I think that's Russian propaganda. And I think it's a Russian view that they did this because of uh, NATO enlargement. Two, I don't think it has anything to do with like Ukraine getting access to sophisticated weaponry. And three, I don't think it has anything to do with them protecting Russian speakers because Russian speakers in Ukraine have begun to diverge from their ethnic identity as something like Russian Ukrainians. Vladimir Putin, you know, like Ukrainians should build statues to Vladimir Putin in every town. And here's why. He created a sense of, nationhood across nice. Ukraine. Nice. He is he is he is the greatest nation builder in Ukraine like ever. And so 
that wasn't the reason either, because nobody was inviting Putin into Ukraine. And we saw that because they're fighting. Everyone was fighting, including Russian speakers. Last two presidents of Ukraine, including Zelensky, are Russian speakers. So what is it then? Why did he invade? Well, in December of 2021, a really fascinating character who I think everybody should follow, Vladislav Surkov, who's like the Rasputin of the Kremlin. He wrote an interesting op-ed. It's in Russian, but you can find it. You can use Google Translate. So Sirkov wrote an op-ed in like December of 2021. And he said, look, and it was published, by the way, like by Russian media as like, oh, insightful op-ed. And he said, we're going to invade Ukraine and we're going to invade Ukraine because of entropy. And he defined this concept of entropy. Like, look, all political systems decline and they have to revitalize themselves through some conflict. You know, it doesn't have to be war. But we're going to choose war in Ukraine. And then he said in this op-ed, like, look, you people in the West, like, you do the same. You know, you did it in Iraq, you did it in Afghanistan, so we're going to do it in Ukraine. And I think what he was pointing to is the reason that Putin ultimately entered Ukraine. Now, this is investment relevant, Harry. This isn't just us having a philosophical debate. It's investment relevant because if Putin invaded Ukraine for a petty domestic political reason, that's not some sort of a philosophy or ideology of the third Rome or like blah, 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 all this nonsense, Eurasianism, you know? If he just went in there because his polls went down, then he's going to get out before the polls go down further because the war has now turned wrong. And this is extremely investment relevant. And it's the foundation of my thesis that the war probably is going to enter stasis. Very, very interesting. Uh, and a, a final piece of this question, which is, uh, I should thank my friend Mark Roberts for uh, alerting me to this. Uh, uh, George Friedman has been arguing about the Russian, Russia-Ukraine conflict as leading to a stronger connection between the Baltic states all the way down to Romania, just a kind of a unit that defends the West or the frontier of the West. What's your theory on that? And do you think it is an investable idea? Oh, man. Like, let me tell you something. George had that view for a long time because uh, I was the Europe guy at Stratfor. <laughs> that was my first job, as I talk about it in the book. Um, and he made me, oh, my God, I wrote so many analyses about the Medjugorje, as it's called. I couldn't pronounce it. That's why I let you do that. Yeah, that's, that's what it's called. The, uh, I mean, it's defined by the Visegrad group, but it's this. Um, it's an old late 19th, early 20th century concept of Medjugorje, which is part Medjugorje. of Europe between the two. It's like a buffer region, right? Um, what I would say is that I think he's, you know, he's he's already correct. You know, he's already correct because from the Baltic states down to Bulgaria, even there is, and Kosovo, I would argue, and Macedonia, there is this very like um, anti, you know, Russian and pro-American sleeve belt in Europe. And um, I think that that sleeve and that belt are going to be a problem for European unity because Western Europeans are not as anti-Russian. And it's not because they're sleeping at the wheel, as Americans like to say. Exactly. And they're capable of defending themselves. You know, so there's this like there's air, there's this American arrogance out there like, oh, the Germans are asleep at the wheel. They don't care. They're being they're being defended by Americans like, no, don't you worry about Germans. You know, you give Germans 24 months and they'll conquer all of Western Europe again. Like, that's my view. Like, let's, let's not wake up the Germans, you know. But Germans have a sense of like, well, look, we can deal with the Russians. Um, right now, they're not panicking. They're telling the Russians, we're going to print money to pay for higher priced gas. Can you live without $50 billion a year of gas imp- exports? 
Let's see. Let's see. The Germans are playing a game of chicken with the Russians. And I think that there's so much German bashing out there um, that it's kind of ridiculous. But Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spanish, you know, they're so far away from Russia and they, they know how to handle Russia that they're going to continue to have relations with Russia. They, they're going to continue to have them decades from now. Whereas this Medjugorje period region, I think, is much more, for good reason, alarmist about Russia and is therefore going to look for ties with, with the U.S. and the U.K. So I think George is absolutely right. I think this has been happening already. Uh, what is the investability of this? I'm not sure. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And I'll tell you something else. I'm not sure it's good for the Medjugorje because the truth is this. What they need is more integration with the European economy. And what they need is to integrate into the financial and economic institutions of Western Europe so they can keep their yields low, so they can keep their inflation low through integration with a more deflationary part, so they can provide labor force, remittances, all sorts of stuff. At the end of the day, United States of America is going to provide you with javelins. It's not going to buy your stuff. And it's not going to provide you with demand. And so from a purely investable like perspective, I'm not owning Poland because somehow they're going to be allied with the U.S. Like I think that's ridiculous. Um, in fact, I want to short this region because if they start getting their foreign policy diverged from Paris and Berlin, Paris and Berlin will eventually in some way, shape, or form cut them off from that economic integration. That's the very reason they've been so successful over the past 30 years. And Why that's, wouldn't Paris and Berlin want to protect them? Well, I'm not saying that they wouldn't want to protect them. But if Poland decides to curry favor with the U.S. over the next 10 years and says, look, we're going to be very aggressive towards Russia and becomes a thorn in some sort of reconciliation between Moscow and Berlin, you know, post-Putin, we're talking, you know, if they continue to be very aggressive, that's not going to serve German interests. And Germans are going to say to Poland, like, well, looks like you don't need us. And oh, by the way, because you're aggressive towards Russia, you are protecting us and we don't have to do anything with it. Have fun with your American friends. So this solves German's kind of security problem while also angering Germany. And I think that this is something that's been happening, by the way, for, for the last decade. You know, Sweden and Poland had this European partnership program that was really angering the Russians. The Germans were never really enthusiastic about it. Um, there's a lot of foreign policy decisions made by this geographical sleeve that will irk the Germans and the French. And the Germans and the French, I think they probably correctly assume that they can keep Russia at bay with other tools without, without provoking them. So this is, this is something that I think is going to be an interesting dynamic, but I'm not sure it's a reason to own the Romanias and the Polands and the Bulgarias. I don't think it's going to revitalize their economy that they're aggressive towards Russia. What revitalized these economies, and I'm from this region, so I can tell you this explicitly, like I've witnessed this. Are you an EU member or not? fundamentally defines whether you're a successful economy or not. And, and uh, people in the UK, US, they hate the EU for all sorts of reasons. Like, look, fundamental fact, Serbia's not in the EU, Croatia is. Boom. The end, end of story, end of sentence. And by the way, you've got American allies, Kosovo, Macedonia, Albania, very, very staunch American allies that are not in the EU. How did that work out for them? It, you know, so the whoever got into the EU first, and got the juice out of that, they're, they're, they're viable countries. You go to Warsaw today, I mean, it looks like a first world city, which, and, and you know, Belgrade, my hometown in the 70s and 80s looked like a first world city. 
Whereas now, like, and by the way, if you went to Belgrade and then to Warsaw in the 80s, you would have been like, oh my God, Yugoslavia is so much more advanced. And it was. So membership in the EU is the ticket to economic performance and market performance. And I think that if they sacrifice their economic links for national security, um, you know, they might be more secure, but I don't think that they will be as viable economies going forward. And I, I bet you anything that American analysts will disagree with me. You know, they will argue that like somehow U.S. benevolence will extend to market performance, but like it's not 1950s anymore. You know, uh, U.S. U.S. has not been offering the kind of surplus demand it offered in the 50s and 60s. And on top of that, politics in the U.S. has moved away from laissez-faire, like free trade. So then what are you offering Poland other than Patriot missiles? Got it. Well, that's everything I had to ask today. If you want to finish with something, that would be great. Otherwise, it's been a real pleasure having you on, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, I can't believe I kept saying your name wrong for the first part of the interview. R looks like an N. R looks like an end in the upper <laughs> red. I, you know, I need you contact. You know, I might get some social media mileage out of that. So I mean, listen, money. first and foremost, you are <laughs> very, very sweet. So honey is appropriate. I mean, you've clearly <laughs> you've gotten ready for this interview better than anyone I've ever had. Uh, these are really, really insightful questions and made me really sweat here and think about it. So thank you so hey, much, Harry. It's it was awesome. Uh, the pleasure was mine, Marco. Um, and with that, I hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Marco, for a super interesting and full of energy conversation. I loved some of the insights that Marco shared and how he was taught that the real value lies in seeing beyond the headlines, especially when it comes to politics. Also really fascinating to hear how they were able to determine that China was revising their zero COVID policies before this became public only a few days ago by focusing on the constraints and not on the policy makers. Of course, his Washington versus Buenos Aires consensus was also fascinating and how looking at prior outcomes in today's world is less valuable in his opinion. And finally, not least, his views on the Ukrainian conflict for a European like myself, that was really interesting. Make sure you go and follow Marcos and Harry's work because, as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.